Romans, the first chapter. Paul is continuing the introduction to his letter to the church at Rome. He writes of his desire to visit Rome, to proclaim the gospel there. Now, normally for Paul, he wants to proclaim the gospel where nobody else has been. Because he's called to be an evangelist. But you see, Paul wants to go to Spain. And he wants the church at Rome to be one of the sponsors for his journey to Spain. He also hadn't been in Rome. And while Paul's goal is to proclaim the gospel where it hasn't been proclaimed, he's going to Rome because he wants to proclaim the gospel to the believers there, as we'll see in just a minute, but also to unbelievers there. And then continue to Spain. He hopes to give a spiritual gift to the church, to receive encouragement from them, but more than anything else, Paul wants to proclaim the gospel. First, there is no second. He's going to use first, but he doesn't use second. That's just Paul. Sometimes he gets caught up in thought and never returns back to where he started out. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These words were words that inspired Martin Luther. As he was searching for an easing of his conscience before a just and angry God, knowing that he could never present himself as sinless, knowing he couldn't get his own thoughts in order, 
And if you can't get your own thoughts in order, how can you say you can stand before God, a God of justice, and you figured it out? Habakkuk 2 and Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. In Habakkuk 2, a verse, a chapter we all read, we read those three chapters out of Habakkuk often, don't we? If you can find it there in the Old Testament in the small prophets. The righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, Paul proclaims, is the power of God for salvation, first to Jews, then to the rest of the world. And in fact, Jews were called to proclaim salvation to the whole world. They didn't do it. But that's what they were called to do. And the Old Testament proclaims the gospel, the good news that God's pro God provides salvation for all who trust in him. Now, if you were here for Sunday school, you would have heard Ray Vanderlaan mention that. The covenant is about staying on the land. The covenant that God made with Israel. But salvation is found only in trusting him for salvation. It is the same message proclaimed in the First Testament and in the Second Testament. One continual train of thought. You cannot provide salvation for yourself. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. We need salvation, and we can't do it for ourselves. As soon as you get this area of life in order, you're going to screw up over here in this area of your life. You think that your thought life is finally under control, and then that sexy man or woman passes in front of you, and there went your thought life. You thought it was under control till somebody cut you off on the freeway. And now you know where your thought life really goes, down in the depths where it ought not to be. Or when you have more months than you have money in your checking account, and you think, well, I can figure out a way to do this. And then you get angry because you can't figure out a way to do it. And you're obviously not trusting God. And that makes you even angrier because you want to trust God in the middle of all this circumstance. But you just can't bring yourself to do it. And where is God keeping this stuff in order for me? He's there. We just tend to not trust him to do it. The same message of salvation starts in Genesis and goes all the way through to the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation that God provides salvation if you will trust in him. Now the Jews were the first to hear that message. They were also the first to forget the message and to try to live life their own way. And they knew that God loved them. Why? Because he had called them. And since God loved them, God called them, God gave them a land, called them his own people, they can do whatever in the blazes they want to do, and God will always provide for them. 
except that we see over and over and over that God says, no, no, it's not how it works. If you're faithful to me, you can remain on the land. If you're unfaithful, you'll be spit off the land. You will not be able to survive on it. So Paul writes that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We love using that word power in the Christian community. Oh, what a powerful message. Oh, what a powerful song. In fact, I wish we could come up with some other word. Because what you're really trying to say is the song moved me. The sermon moved me. The text moved me. The story moved me. It's not that the story has power. God is the one who has power and it's God who will ultimately move us by his power from weakness to his strength. The gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to folks who don't need, who don't know they need it, to folks who call out for it, and the Messiah is the power of God. How does God provide salvation? In Jesus, the Messiah. That's the only way we get it. Whether you know it or not, even in the Old Testament, when they didn't know that God was going to provide salvation to all who trust in him through Jesus, that's still how God provides salvation. That's how God provides forgiveness. That's how God provides eternal life. It is the power of God seen in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that brings us salvation. Salvation is only in him. There is no other way, no other name under heaven, Peter proclaims, by which we may be saved. The gospel demonstrates the power of God because only God can provide justice and righteousness which brings the sinner salvation and freedom from judgment. Only God can do it. We cannot generate enough righteousness to do anything for ourselves. We're stuck. So God steps in and provides his power to bring us from death to life, just like he brought Jesus from death life. Now at the end of the passage we encounter a phrase that Paul uses mainly in Romans. The righteousness of God. Jesus, Paul declares, became for us the righteousness of God. And you can find that in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. But mostly it's in the book of Romans that the righteousness of God is discussed. And as we go through Romans, we're going to learn more and more about what righteousness really means. It is more than just sinlessness. It means to do right, to act with justice, 
to act with wisdom in a right relationship to God and to one's community. It's going to mean even more than that, as you will see by the time we get through with our study of the book of Romans. We equate righteousness with sinlessness because God is in his very attributes righteous, holy, sinless. But God is not so much worried about our trying to generate righteousness as he is about providing it in his son because he knows what we can and cannot do. You remember when your kids or your grandkids were little and they were lying there on the floor and you wanted them to get up and walk. And then once they started walking, you wanted them to lie back down on the floor <laughs> because now you got to chase after them. And you were powerless to make them walk. You could help them stand up, but you had to hold on to them the whole time. They could grab your fingers and you could kind of move them along from one place to another while they take these steps and drag their toes, but they're not really walking. You're the one who's doing it. And you can want them to walk as much as you want them to walk, but you can't force them to do it. Now, my grandmother used to say that my father walked at an early age, that he never took up crawling. He just took up walking. And because he didn't crawl, she could leave him in the middle of the floor and go do laundry or go to the kitchen and come back. And my dad was still in the middle of the floor. Why? Because he couldn't crawl over to a piece of furniture to get himself up. But if she left him too close to a piece of furniture, my dad would grab hold of that furniture, pull himself up, and start walking, stumbling his way around. She knew what he could do, she knew what he couldn't do, so she left him in a place where he couldn't. She knew where he would be. It's one of the reasons I like the passage in Hosea 11 where God says, Israel, I taught you how to walk. You couldn't do it. I taught you. God teaches us how to be righteous. Even though we can't generate it ourselves, he teaches us what it means to be righteous. Look at Jesus. Righteous. But God does not expect us to become righteous, holy people until the moment we are changed. As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, when this corruption puts on incorruption, when this perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, we cannot change ourselves from our corruptible nature, but God can and will do it at the appropriate time. Until then, we have the example about what it means to do right to act with justice, to act with wisdom, to act faithfully before God in every area of our lives. 
the righteousness of God is justice and faithfulness. It is his saving action in his inherent sinlessness and purity. And God's righteousness is demonstrated in providing salvation by faith in Jesus. He provides salvation for us because we are unable. Only by trusting in him can we be saved. Now Paul refers to Habakkuk, the second chapter. So turn with me over there because you need to read the book of Habakkuk at least once or twice in your life. You will find it towards the end of your Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I don't care how you pronounce it. Habakkuk is not going to be here to say don't pronounce it this way. And Habakkuk doesn't care whether you call him Habakkuk or Habakkuk. He just doesn't give a rip. <clears throat> now, Paul takes these words, he uses them from the Septuagint, and he's going to kind of give these words a slightly different meaning than Habakkuk does. So the second chapter, the second verse, write the vision, because Habakkuk has been complaining to God. So God answers him. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run. Who reads it? For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now the vision is the vision of God bringing salvation. And how often do we get in the place where we say, how come it hasn't happened yet? Where are you, God? How come you're delaying? What are you doing? And God says to Habakkuk, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But... The righteous shall live by his faith. Now Habakkuk is saying this, the righteous person who is waiting upon the Lord. For the Lord's salvation will come. It will not delay. God will do it in his own time. So Paul picks up on that theme here in Romans and declares the righteous shall live by faith. How? by waiting upon God to do what only God can do, which is to provide salvation. God's the only way we are saved. It's not by the faith you generate. If you'll remember from Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. God plants in us the ability to trust in him if we only allow ourselves to do it. Even that faith is his gift. Even that faith does not mean that we are worthy. 
just like you applaud the kid. Look, you're walking with me. See, you're walking. Those chubby little legs that haven't had much exercise that are always falling down and you're holding them up. And you're saying, see, what a good job you're doing. You're walking, what a great job. They're not walking, you're dragging them along. And that's what God says to us, what a good job you finally trusted in me. I gave you the ability to trust in me, it's your victory. He applauds us as if we had done something wonderful when it's all what God has done. And that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. He wants to preach the gospel, to proclaim the power of God to salvation, not your power to achieve it, but your ability to receive it when you finally give up trying to achieve the unachievable and allow him to do what he does best. And then we find that the righteous shall live by faith. <laughs> Gracious God, thank you that you stepped in. We needed a redeemer and still do. And that you provided that redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness and salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the power of God for salvation. Thank you for that good news. May we rely on you as we trust in you, in your grace, in your mercy, and in your love. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Will you join?